Welcome to Systems Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how organisational systems are designed to maximise the impact of businesses for customers, owners and workers. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba, Na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Greg Usher. Greg is currently the Executive General Manager for RPS, a global professional services firm who define, design and manage urbanising and defence projects. Greg has successfully managed geographically and technically diverse teams in an executive capacity throughout Australia and the South Pacific and built businesses from startup, led organisations through mergers, consolidations, integrations, and change management processes. Greg has also found time amongst all this to complete his PhD by publication here at USQ and authored two books with another on the way. Greg, I want to talk a bit about your book, but I want to talk about how you got there. Where did your career start and how did you get to this position about being an expert in systems thinking? Uh, yeah, so it's interesting, I guess. Um, you know, did, did I set out with a plan? No. Um, the world happened uh, and I followed along um, with it. So my uh, my initial uh, training was actually back in uh, in USQ when it was back called the DDIAE of Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education, uh, where I did um, an associate diploma in civil engineering. Uh, back in the day. Then that, that sort of led me into engineering. That took me into building design. Since that time, I've run, run my own business, had, had uh, my own company on a couple of occasions, learned, learned a bunch of lessons through that, um, and, then, uh, and then moved into management roles. Uh, so I was a, the state design manager for a company called Clarendon Homes. Then I moved into development management and into project management, and then from there into to leadership. So that, I guess, has has taken me on on the journey. Um, so my current role now, um, I'm the executive general manager for a company called RPS. So we're an international consulting firm, um, and I run uh, a service line called Building and Property. So I have uh, 380 consultant project managers around Australia that, that work for me, um, and that was really, I guess, the thing that started to get me interested in this idea of systems thinking. Um, and and I I started down the, the the pathway. I did I did my MBA um, through through it was USQ at that at that stage externally, uh, and then I followed on with that going to to the, the PhD with USQ. The key thing for me was I I didn't have a background in project management, but I ended up there, and that's often the case. Um, you know, people come from different different backgrounds. They they're handed projects to do, and then they find that they have, you know. That they're quite good at it, or that they like it, and and so they they sort of move move into that that realm. We're only recently seeing offerings in, in tertiary education, and and even in in you know in in TAFE and stuff like that, where you can actually do project management. Before that, it was just like, well, you you guys work it out, you're engineers, you'll sort it out. <laughs> Off you <laughs> go. <laughs> um, 
And and because I didn't really, you know, it was, it, we, we used the term accidental project manager. That's how I got there. But I was coming from a very different perspective. And so I was looking at some of the things that, that were being done. And I thought, well, why the hell are we doing that? Like, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I know we do it because we were told to do it. But but what's the basis for it? And what, why do I keep doing that? So for me, the, this process was very much a journey of discovery where I, I went right back into the theoretical foundations of project management and said, where did this come from and why do we keep doing it? Look, shattered me, quite frankly, uh, <laughs> because I, <laughs> I went, we, why are we doing this? This is, you know, all these all these assumptions in the underlying theory are diametrically opposed to what we do. But, you know, we, we constantly keep regurgitating the same ideas um, and, and through that creating a, a bunch of issues for ourselves that we need to manage. Um, so that, that sort of got me me going on the on the, the research side but at the same time obviously I'm managing a company with a whole lot of project managers in there and I'm watching what they're doing and I'm, I'm seeing the systems thinking playing out on both sides of the equation so I'm, I'm watching it I'm researching it as, as, a, as an academic in the project management side but I'm also applying it as an executive on the organizational side so yeah very very much what I would call a voyage of discovery, um, as opposed to a, a you know clear plan that this is what I was going to do, uh, and then that, yeah that um, that has led me you know to de- to develop I guess a, a whole bunch of models around what what are we really doing here and challenging people's thinking about are, are we really um, are, we, are we doing what we think we're doing and and applying these these principles and processes um, incorrectly or do we need to almost like throw that bit out and start again, um, which is, you know, we're kind of where I'm at now. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that we may need to throw out and start thinking about it again. I want to talk about that, Greg. Can you take us on a journey? Can you take us back to when you first realised in your experiences that we do something mechanically, automatically, because that's the way we've learnt it as project managers um, from our uh, forebears and that you've realised at some point that, hang on a minute, that doesn't seem logical and then that sent you off on a trajectory of research. Absolutely. Uh, look, Daniel, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very aware that you didn't call me in to talk about project management, but um, so it is, it, is my, it is my area of expertise. But what I'll, one of the, I'll use a project management example to show you what I mean, but you can apply this just as much um, in, in, in broader management and certainly in, in leadership capability. So assuming that not everybody has a background in project management, right, that we're talking to, one of the fundamental tenets of project management is managing time. So what happens is that is a client will come to me and they'll say, we've got this project, it, it, we want to build a hospital. We think it's got 420 beds, but we can't be sure. It's definitely going to go on that site over there. It could be four stories, but it might be five. Um, and and, it, and you've got a budget of somewhere between 750 million and a billion dollars. So somewhere, something like that, you know, really absolutely locked down, no questions asked, this is what we're doing. So, you know, there's, there's, there, is a lot of, there is a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in that. They understand in only broad terms what they want. Um, and, you know, and, and one of the things I say to my project managers is, if you've got a room and you're starting, if you're starting a project and you've got a room of three stakeholders and you say to them, I'm building a football ground, they will all picture a completely different thing. Um, so, so what happens is people come, they, they know they need this project done, but they they don't have any specifics about it. So a lot of a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in that. One of the very first things we're taught to do as project managers is to go and program that out. So turn that into a schedule. 
and we use this, this system of work breakdown structures. We say, well, this work requires these tasks, these tasks take this long, um, and then we put them into an optimal sequence and I come back with something like a Gantt chart with a nice critical path on it that says this is how long is it going to take. Now, this was the thing that really started to annoy me is because quite simply, I'm good at my job, right? I know, I know how these programs work. But I would literally go back every two weeks and change them. So I got together a group of 25 project managers from around the country from varying levels. And I'll say, how often do you start by doing a Gantt chart? And they said, every single time. I said, and how often do you change that Gantt chart? They said, every single time. And I said, so why are you doing a Gantt chart? <laughs> well, because we're supposed to. <laughs> okay. So look, there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we do them, right? And, and this is what I'm saying. I... I came to the conclusion that we need to do it, but we're not doing it for the reason we think we're doing it. We're told to do it in order to create this this fixed program in an in a in a dynamic environment. What well, what the hell's the point of that? Um, that? As soon as I've written a thing, it changes. But importantly, what we're doing is we're actually creating confidence because we've got a group of people who don't know how to get from point A to point B. They've come to us and we create an artifact that shows them that it can be done, not how it will be done, but it can be done. Now, if I need to change that in a month's time, who cares? Like it, it, it's, fulfilled its, it's fulfilled its requirement, which was to give you enough confidence to keep moving forward that someone had some idea around how this should be done. As you progress through the project and as this becomes a lot more um, solid um, and, and, and the ambiguity and uncertainty seems to drop away, of course, then I can get more and more detail around that and I can, you know, then, then I start to manage in traditional project management terms. I, I saw that and there's look, probably 20 or 30 of those sort of examples that I, I found in, in, in project management, but I also found that we do that a lot in management as well. We, we create a strategy. We, we, we put that strategy out there as if we know that this is exactly what we're going to do. And, you know, it, go, it goes back to um, uh, the, the idea of, you know, do, do we need um, defined strategy or an emergent strategy? Well, we kind of need both. We kind of need both because the defined strategy gets us started but we need to be able to respond to our environment with an emergent strategy. The days of, you know, the three to five year locked in strategy that cascades down into, you know, all, all these different tactical frameworks underneath, that's gone. Uh, and we need to have a broad structure an understanding of where we want to go. And then we head in that direction. I think it was Jack Welsh who said, there is no perfect strategy. You just pick a strategy and you implement like hell. So that, you know, that, that's really, I think, uh, a big shift we're seeing in, um, in the executive level is, is understanding that, you know, this whole idea of, of building this locked-in strategy that goes for three to five years with the whole thing broken down into, you know, work breakdown structures. You don't do that anymore. You've you, you got a, an understanding of where you want to get to, a general feeling about how you want to do that, and then you go and you respond to the market at the time. So we have to, and maybe in some ways COVID taught us this, but it is not just a, a COVID, not just an example of um, a one-off thing, but there are definitely reoccurring things in our lives that tell us that we need to have the knowledge and be flexible and respond to um, what we need to respond to, have a direction, as you say, but not a minute, finite plan. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, and that's uh, look. I would say that that that's at the executive level. Uh, you know, and and when you're at executive level, you're thinking in a different horizon. You're thinking, you know, three to five, five to ten years out. I I set what I call my, my the, the strategic framework for where I want to be in three to five years and five to ten. But I expect my managers who are working in a time frame of twelve months to have some very detailed plans about how they're going to implement that for me. I don't expect them to have firm plans past one year because we will reassess this in a year's time and see if it's doing what we thought it would do. Um, and in some cases, you'll find that, you know, that, that you're doing the right thing, but maybe doing it the wrong way. So you tweak that. And then in other cases, you'll find it's exactly where you want to be. So you say, right, give me another year of that. Um, and then in other cases, you go, that's, that's not right. Let's, you know, let's abandon that. You know, and, and, and come up with a new way of doing this. What have we learnt through the last 12 months about the strategy that we thought we were putting in place? And so you need you need that constant, um, uh, you know, that constant feedback loop. You know, is, is this actually doing what we thought it would do based on the assumptions that we made at the start? And if not, you can't, you can't be too wedded to it. You've got to, you know, you, you've got to look at the end goal. What are you trying to achieve? Not, are we doing this exactly how I thought this would be done? Do the structures, Greg, do the systems and how they work together influence this a lot? Yes, yes, they do. I, I like to talk to my senior team about the difference between leadership and management. Um, so I say, you know, leaders lead people, managers manage tasks. And so systems and processes absolutely have a place in that, but I think more so in the management side of it. People don't need systems and processes to follow a leader. They're drawn to a leader, right? The leader will, will, for a whole bunch of reasons, be someone that they want to follow. And that leader can, you know, has a vision and that vision becomes a strategy. When we get that strategy down into the implementation side, the systems and processes become important because if you have systems and processes that are running contrary to what you're asking them to do as a leader, it becomes very disheartening. So, for example, you know, if, if our strategy is about, you know, becoming or, or, you know, one part of the business, we want to increase efficiency in that business to, to lift the profitability by 2% EBIT in the next two to three years, say, for example. But the systems and processes that I put in place don't allow people to do that. They, they're wasting time doing things. Then the systems and processes undermine the strategy. And so what happens then, people feel frustrated and angry and they no longer want to follow the leader because they think the leader's got these great ideas but can't actually make any of this happen. You know, so it starts to break it down. So so I don't think I don't think you need systems and processes to lead. I think you need systems and processes to manage. But if you're if you're a leader and not paying attention to your systems and processes, um, it could be undermining everything you're doing. What about structures? of people. So how people are organized within that system of the organization, is that going to have a big effect on, you know, how you achieve what you want to accomplish as a leader for that organization? Or do we just follow a sort of structure that that we see in most businesses, the leadership, you know, executive management level, so forth? I, I think we I think we need to be very careful about generalizations. Um, some organizations run with the traditional sort of you know top down management and they can they can run quite well because of what they're doing um in in the context is that the, the context that they're they're working in but for me and the business that i work in 
you know, I, I, I run a team of well-trained professional consultants and I need them to be making decisions. I need them to be innovative. I need them to be creative because they're going to be, uh, the sort of things that they're going to come up with when they're talking to their clients, they won't get it out of a textbook. You can't just go back and look it up. So I, I need them to be applying all those sort of skills all the time. So in this context and in this business, I'm a big fan of decentralised process. Now, I will put a caveat on that. The reason I'm comfortable with a decentralised process is because I've hired the right people in the first place and I've trained them well. And I have given them a framework of the decisions that the types of decisions that they're allowed to make. If I just hired, you know, a, a new grad and said, hey, make any decision you want. Oh, great. They've just signed me up to a $4 billion deal that, you know, we're going to send the, the business broke. So you can't, you, you can't do that, right? But you, you can say at your level of the organisation, these are the, 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 the parameters of the decisions that you're allowed to make. Within that, you, you make those decisions. Don't, you don't come to me. For me, that's part of the training process because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create critical thinkers and, and people who can make decisions. Obviously, as they progress in their career, as they progress in the organisation, those parameters get bigger and bigger and bigger. By the time you know these people are, are reaching general management positions or executive positions within the business, they are competent decision makers, critical thinkers. They've learned how to think strategically. They've, they've learned how to think about risk. Ha, have they done that? Uh, blood free, probably not. They probably had a bloody nose or two along the way. That's that's part of the journey. You know, we all go through that, uh, and and uh, you know, and 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 they have to learn from those mistakes. I mean, if you keep making bad decisions, you're not going to be hanging around here much longer. You know, <laughs> I don't just let you keep making bad decisions, but I mean, we've all done it, right? We've all made bad decisions because that's that's the nature of of what we have to do in our business. If I was running a medical organisation, I would probably be a lot stricter about people's freedom to make decisions, you know, <laughs> when, when, when um, you know, sure, if you don't, you know, if you don't like the guidelines, just cut wherever you think you want to cut. Um, it's not, not going to, not going to work well. So I think, I think the structure, the structure needs to, to, to be aligned to the business itself um, and the context in which that business operates. Based on that answer, Greg, as a leader yourself, do you think that, and, and I guess you've already answered this in a sense, that leaders delegate enough authority, putting the decision making in the right place within your business? I think I think we do it quite well here. I've worked in places where where it hasn't been done well. What's the effect of that when when it's not done well? So if it's not done well, what you're going to find is a number of things. So if you if you're working with, so if I was in this business now. I've gone out of my way to make sure that I hire really smart people who do complex work. If I then didn't give them the authority to make decisions, then I'm not, first of all, I'm not getting the best outcome out of them. Secondly, the business grinds to a halt because they're going to ask me to make decisions about every single thing. I haven't got time for that. Let me get involved in the decisions that, that span the service line or that impact 300 people. I don't want to get involved in the decision that's going to impact the two people that the two clients that you're working with. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in the two clients. It just means if I have to spend all my day making decisions about stuff that you already know the answer to, we're not going to get very far. So, um, so I, um, I, you know, absolutely think, you know, I need to, need to get that decision down. And I, I 
it needs for me it needs to go down to the lowest possible level based on the sphere the sphere or the realm of the problem so i don't want a senior project manager who's got a team of five making a decision that will have implications across the entire business because they don't like they can't see the entire business that's not that's not what i've employed them for those sort of decisions that are going to go outside or impact that the outside their, their their realm or their sphere of influence that needs to be escalated to the next level up and escalated to the next level up it's an interesting challenge because as we have just talked about earlier in the interview you know there's these systems in play and and you you can't always see how those systems play out you can't always see the impact of the system you know when you in in the systems thinking literature they talk about these complex adaptive systems where you can make a small change at, at a single node at the lower level it has a massive impact um, on the entire system or vice versa you might make a massive system impact and and it has negligible impact at the 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 single node down the bottom so um look it doesn't it doesn't always work but i would much prefer I, I would much prefer to have a team of people who make decisions and keep moving than a team of people who stop while they go back and ask you know can i do this um so but i mean the, you know the, the the flip side of that um yeah, I guess is is you know I've been in organisations that that had traditional management structures and and you know very tight levels of of delegation and in terms of you know making decisions and and, and spending money for example, and, and it did it, in many ways it crippled the business. It was it was it, it's it's almost an old style of thinking, in that well you know we've got to, we've got to command and control. Um, we do, in the business that I work, we do a lot of work with defence, um, and that command and control structure is old thinking, even in in defence forces now. Like it's delegate that to the front line as much as you can, but when it comes to strategic decisions, they have to be made by the right level. It, yeah, for for me, I I, I much prefer the decentralised model. So even in some context-specific uh, situations where the risk is high, like in, in defence, for instance, um, there is some leeway. The um, concept being that, you know, you, you want to hire people where, where you can chuck the ball and they'll do whatever they need to to fetch it for you, that, that you, you say, look, this is the direction I need you to go, land me that client, and it's up to them how they do it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's it's you know it's like it's like being a coach of of a sporting team, right? We go out and you know say to them, the the goal is to win. Um, we spend all week training in different ways to do that, but I can't come on the field and and say now throw the ball to him, throw the ball to her. You you have to make those decisions. That's why we train. That's why we pick the good people. That's why we we keep people informed about what the actual end goal is, what we're trying to do. But if you micromanage that. You got to you got to literally walk around and chase the ball every time someone passes, and you've got to do that in a dynamic environment where the other team's trying to stop you. It just doesn't work, and so it comes back to that. You know, the, the captains on the on the on the field they're calling the shots. They're they're giving those sort of directions. So you've got to you got to find the right people. You've got to train the right people. Have them understand what you're trying to do. Are you going to win every game? No, you're not. But if you learn from every game, you're going to get better and better and better. You know, that's the end goal. And you have to put those people in the right positions. You know, you know, you have to know their strengths. Absolutely. So, um, for me, I, I sort of really saw this probably four or five years ago, um, where we had a particular project. I won't go into too much detail. Um, the project was was worth close to a billion dollars um, that we had to deliver, and I had two very 
very different project directors and I wasn't sure which one to put onto the job. So I ended up actually picking both because one of them, I call him my attack dog. Um, he gets a contract out and uh, he would give a lawyer a run for their money. He's like, no, clause 32, section seven says you have to do this, this and this and this in this order or I don't pay you. And he would just literally not pay them because the contract said you don't get paid. Builders hated him, like, because he he was all over this contract, and he was generally right. Uh, most of the time, he was right, and and he'd say, "No, I'm not paying that because you didn't do this, and you had to do that within 14 days of this, and you didn't submit that." Okay, so that's 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 one side of it. From a hard line, hard you know, hard cost contract delivery, that's fantastic. That's the guy you want, right? destroying relationships left, right and centre as he went through this um, contract administration process. So I teamed him and gave them equal responsibility within the project. I teamed him with another guy that I call the ultimate diplomat. And, and, and he was savvy enough to let this guy like smash people with the contract until they were in submission. And then he would come in and, and go and say, hey, listen, you know, we, that, that's how we, we could do it every time, but that's not really what we want, is it? Um, <laughs> let's do it like this. What if we think about that? You know, next time try it like this. Um, and so, yeah, so those those two guys, probably more so than ever, um, was was I, uh, I was actually able to build a team through two guys who were diametrically opposed in the way they approached it, but in doing so, got the best of both worlds. And uh, and it was it was a a funny few months as they sort of worked their way through that deciding who did what and, you know, there was a, a bit of mentoring and coaching going on with those two guys for me um, and, and, and got sort of got them to the point, say, if you if you argue with each other about who's doing this right, I'll never get what I want. But if you both focus on delivering the outcome that we need to achieve, you become complementary. That's what I want you to do. Talk to each other, see each other's point of view, and that you know that that to me is a, is, a, is a key part of that leadership and executive role is being able to look at another point of view and saying where's where's the benefit here, where's the merit in this, and and allowing the team or or, or using that thinking yourself to create a better solution. So the key the key to the whole thing was keeping them focused on the goal I wanted them to achieve, not on how I wanted them to do it. A perfect marriage, Greg. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and they're still friends. <laughs> you brought up something really interesting there, which is that how the business works with suppliers and customers and all the other types of organisations that it interacts with, governments, laws, etc. Those systems outside of a business that work with that main business. Is there a, a mutual concern there amongst the main business and, and those other systems, the builder that you mentioned, for instance, in um, solving the problem um, so that, you know, you can all work together? Yes, I would say if, if, if we were living in a perfect world, then everybody would understand that the goal is the most important thing, right? If we're building a, if we're building a building, um, if we build the building well, everybody's going to be happy, where things run into trouble, of course, is that there are certain constraints and parameters that, that have to be you know, met. So, no, I can't just let the builder go and do what they want because the money's limited. So there, there's, I think, I think everybody coming into that situation would love it to be, you know, let's, let's all just work together. Let's all get this done. 
Um, but it goes back to this whole idea of network. They're, they're, they're coming into this, this new network, this network that for, for me, for example, will be, will be a project. But they're coming from a completely different network outside. So they, they have an organisational network that has its own drivers and its own goals and its own values. They, they come into this and I'm going to put them next to someone who's come from another organisation with different goals, values and, and, and drivers. And I'm going to ask them to try and find a mutually beneficial way of delivering this goal that doesn't always work well um you know and, and in the construction industry have a long long history of adversarial litigation um but no one i don't think anybody goes into the no one goes into it wanting a fight right they they, they all would love this to work well in order to make that work you know, from pro- project manager's perspective in order to make that work you have to be able to understand what each person is trying to get out of this so you know and 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 it's not as simple as saying the builder always wants profit um that that's that's not always the case yeah that any business wants profit if we don't make a profit we don't last long builders by and large i've found are you know professionals who want to do a good job good quality work paid well for what they do um they don't you know they just don't want to get screwed and but then oftentimes you've got the designers who've done this design and and they've got very clear ideas around what they want the design to be. And then the owner's got another idea what he thinks it should be or what she thinks it should be. And and so you've got to it's this constant and this is, you know, it goes right back to this the the the, you know, the book that I said at the start where we had these nice, clear, defined this is how you project manage, and you throw that into this dynamic environment that is in many ways governed by personalities and individuals, not by the project. And so yeah, you, you you've got to You've got to try and find that balance. So they're all going to have a different reason for being there. They're all going to have a different outcome that they want. The goal might be to build the project, but they're all there for a different reason. But I, I yeah, never, never do they walk in thinking, oh, I'm going to have a fight because I love this. You know, they're always thinking, you know, how are we going to get the best out of it? How am I going to maximise profit? How am I going to, you know, and and in, in that situation, they maximise profit in most cases by getting through it as fast as they can um, because time is money. You know, so you've got, to, you've got to balance all that all the way through. Networks that we've been talking about, these systems, they're also, um, apart from being connections of people and how those people are structured, but they're, they're also connections of resources too. What influence do you think networks have for both the business and for the leaders inside and outside a business when we're defining them or including resources in their definition? Yes, I guess, you know, it depends what we're, we're talking about with resources. I mean, you know, um, money's a resource, people are a resource, you know, supplies are a resource. I mean, resource management's, you know, the focal point of management, right? It's about making sure that you've got everything you need when you need it. I think certainly the, the, the networks, uh, in an organisational perspective, I think we're becoming more aware that the, the, the networks are critical in all of this. Um, that um, idea of a network being a configuration of things, is really important because uh, you know competitive advantage can can come from any one of those resources. So you know, is it is it coming through digitisation of, of a process? Is it is it coming through um, a network's ability to reach out and flex in terms of you know human capital? Is it coming from the the their ability to get hold of new ideas or cutting edge um, technology if and when I need it? So so the network. The networks themselves become critical in that in that in that whole process for an organisation, and 
while an organisation is, is, is self-focused on what it's trying to achieve, it's always looking out at what partner do I need to make this happen? Should I should I be outsourcing this? Should I be keeping this in? If I keep it in, what tools and systems should I be bringing in? You know, those sort of conversations, discussions need to be happening all the time. And you can't just go, well, listen, we've had this supplier for 20 years. Um, they must be doing the right thing by us. Well, no, go back and have a look at that in terms of what your business is now. Are you are they still giving you the best outcome? And, you know, and, and you know, I wouldn't say abandon a 20-year relationship, but certainly after 20 years, you might be able to sit down and say, hey, can we have a look at this? Um, and I'm not just talking about sharpening the pencil. I'm saying, hey, why don't we work together here to get a better outcome? Can we? Can this is what our business needs from our side? That's what your systems deliver. If we did this bit in the middle, we can we can turn this into a strategic alliance, not just a supplier arrangement. So that, you know, they're the sort of things that businesses need to be thinking about. And going back to your Gantt chart from the beginning of the discussion, if you're doing that program and suddenly, as as happened recently, the price of transport is rising, the price of steel production is rising for your building. Again, you're going back to that Gantt chart and changing it again because you can't get stuff. So that completely throws out your budget and uh, system on system on system. Exactly, exactly. And that's why, you know, that's why I sort of said in the book, you've got, we've got to start thinking a bit bigger here. Don't just say, how do I control finance? Because your finance is linked to your time and your, your time is linked to your supply chain and your supply chain is linked to X, Y, Z. And if you're not thinking about all that, you're not really managing the project. You're just filling in a Gantt chart. Is it also linked to the productivity of your people, which sounds like a silly question because of course it is, but in terms of how productive you can get your staff, not by the old method of whipping them into perfect service, but you know, people have different lives. For instance, somebody might be um, a mother or father of young children. How do we set up a situation for the organisation that gets good productivity out of them while also supporting the lifestyle they want to lead. Yeah, well, I think, I think uh, if we've learned anything through COVID, it's that you don't need to be sitting at your desk to do your job. It's a, it's a very, very important question. I just, I just actually finished writing a paper on, on the impact of, of AI and, and the fourth technical revolution. Within a very short time, within the foreseeable future, there will be a fundamental shift in the way that we uh, define productivity. So productivity, old school, is you give me eight hours of your day and I will give you X number of dollars. As we move into a place where AI can do most of the desk-based jobs that we have now, and uh, and then my article was really about the impact of pro- on project management, and uh, you know it scared a few people in 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 my industry when they said, "Are we really that close?" I said, "Yep, that's how close we are." So what will become important then is not how much time do I sit at my desk doing my job, it's what value can I bring in the time that I give you. And that's going to move very much away from I want $300 an hour as a consultant to I will give you that outcome for a million dollars. Don't bother me about how I get that for you. If I need 20 people and basic systems to do it, I'll deliver it. If I want to invest half a million dollars in a system and do it with one person, that's my choice. That is fundamentally going to change the world's understanding of value and wealth because, you know, they're, they're talking about, the, you know, the, the end of the age of the expert. I, I won't, there won't 
you won't need to be an expert anymore. Google will tell you whatever you need to know. Um, but the question is, how do I apply that? How do I use strategic thinking, critical thinking? How do I work out what's fact and fiction? That's where value is going to be created. And if we don't shift our understanding of value creation, then we're going to end up as dead as the dodo. We're not, we're not going to be there anymore because people are not going to want to pay you by the hour. They're going to pay you for an outcome. So yeah, fundamental shift. And so that, that goes to this whole idea of productivity. Again, because of the industry that I that I work in, you know, for for the last ten years, I've I've said to my team, we don't do timesheets. I don't actually care. I, this is what you're employed to do. <laughs> that's how much, it, it you know, that's what we need to get as an outcome. I'm not going to be able to get a variation on any more of that because I promised them that we would do it. Off you go. You go do that now. If that means that you can get this done in five hours a day, you don't need to tell me. I don't care. But if you need to work 10 hours a day and 12 hours a day, don't come and winch to me. You work out a better way to do it. So, and that's, you know, that's very much how we've, we've structured particularly our project management business. I'm paying you for an outcome. I don't, I don't want you sitting eight hours a day staring at the screen. How do I know that that's even productive? You could be spending six of that on Facebook, particularly when we moved off to, you know, uh, you know, working from home. But a lot of my team are always off site. You know, they're, they're always out doing something else. I don't have, you know, visibility of what they're doing. I need them to achieve the goal I set them. I don't care how long that takes. That's some really good tips to uh, leave the podcast on looking to the future, how we structure work, and really thinking about how technology is going to change that. But even without technology, thinking about how we should change that anyway, how we should think about our systems and our people and our resources and how to make them work better for us um, rather than just making them fill the hours. Dr. Greg Usher, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast.